The Hunter Biden plea deal implodes. DeSantis prepares to enlist RFK Jr. and abortion on the march in Ohio. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and the TFAS Leadership Summit. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we had this extraordinary event in a courtroom a couple days ago, you had this plea agreement all set between the Hunter Biden defense team and Justice Department lawyers, not that those are necessarily distinguishable categories. <laughs> and it it turned out they'd written this plea agreement, which is supposed to be you know incredibly standard, right? So you're, you're not giving anyone preferential treatment. It's supposed to be crystal clear because the stakes of, of making it clear are, are really high. And instead, what we saw was a a plea agreement about these misdemeanor tax charges. And then the immunity terms of the agreement bizarrely tucked into this diversion agreement over the gun charge that Hunter Biden's not even pleading to. He's just just getting this diversion agreement to do probation and, and other stuff and incredibly sweeping terms for immunity, basically for any uh, offenses that happened in this period. At the same time, there's supposedly this really serious investigation ongoing into his business dealings. And usually judges, they rubber stamp plea agreements. They've been worked out by the two parties. And if you're a judge, you don't want to, there's been a carefully set out understanding. You don't want to mess it up by by you know, adding to the, the record unnecessarily. But this judge is like, what's going on here? I don't understand it. Then as she begins pulling the strings, you have a disagreement where the Hunter Biden people are like, yeah, of course we have the sweeping immunity. That's what we agreed to. And the government probably embarrassed. Said, no, no, that's not what we, we agreed to. And she she didn't approve it. And they're back to the, the drawing board but this is just a, a shocking episode. Yeah, it's a debacle. I mean, and I mean, it's like there's a real Keystone Cops aspect to it because even in the in the actual proceeding itself, where this was supposed to be rubber stamped and gone through, I mean, they're literally handing the judge a paragraph at the last second. You know, she's like, "Where's this paragraph 15? And then starts looking at it, and that's when it be all begins to unravel. So there's almost like a cinematic element to it. And it's embarrassing. I mean, it's it's a sign that the the Justice Department was is completely conflicted on this. That they're you know, and and of course they are, right? I mean, they're they're trying to protect the president rather than trying to pass the law, you know, uh, or, or 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 enforce the law. And you know, it it absolutely will throw fuel on the fire to the the conservative complaint and the Trump complaint that there's a two-tier justice system in the country that works one way for Republicans and one way for Democrats, because that's what we see, is that we see prosecutors bending over backwards to multiply the number of charges against Trump, and we see them bending over backwards to protect Hunter Biden, and and you can't unsee it. Yeah. So, Charlie, I, I'm not a big fan of special counsels, but we got a special counsel in the Trump case. 
it, it seemingly to just ice, to insulate the Justice Department from the idea that it's ultimately responsible for all the charges that are being brought against Trump. And we have new charges related to the Mar-a-Lago case that came down yesterday and we're, we're all waiting imminently for charges related to the January 6th case all coming from Jack Smith, the special counsel, and no special counsel in the, the Hunter Biden case where there's a clear conflict of interest. And you know, the old independent counsel statute had the sort of hair trigger mechanism for what constituted an, a conflict or an appearance of a conflict. Here, you don't have just an appearance. You have a real conflict that has had obviously a, a real effects on how this investigation has been conducted. The IRS whistleblowers who we talked about a week or two laid a lot of this out, and they didn't even get into this plea agreement, which is yet more evidence. The worst case scenario here is that the federal government, the executive branch in which is run by Joe Biden, is trying to seal off its investigation into Hunter Biden so that it cannot reach Joe. I've seen some speculation about that, that in a sense, what we have seen here is like the last episode of season two of Stranger Things, where Al is closing the portal. But you don't need that. There could be no scandal involving Joe Biden or anyone else in his family whatsoever. And all of the smoke that is coming out from Chuck Grassley and James Comer could be just that smoke. And this would still be outrageous. For a start, Hunter Biden has been treated differently in the prosecution of his tax offenses, and his gun crimes than have other people. The left is heavily invested in pretending otherwise, and yes, it can find this professor and that lawyer to say this is standard. But it's not. We heard whistleblowers in Congress say as much. Their words were ignored by the press. This plea deal, in and of itself, is an example of special treatment Forget for a moment whether the diversion should have been included on the gun charge, and forget whether or not Hunter Biden should have been charged with a felony on the tax part instead of just a misdemeanor. The sheer scale of what the prosecutors here tried to pull off is astonishing. Andy McCarthy on the McCarthy Report yesterday laid this out really well. There is no way of looking at it without recognizing this as an attempt to inoculate Hunter Biden against the consequences of his potential and still under investigation behavior over a five-year period based on double standards. This plea deal, which was hidden from the public and only came out after it was rejected, is hilarious in its schizophrenia. On the one hand, we have the assertion that the money that Hunter Biden owed taxes on was earned because he is an excellent lawyer, a deal maker, a man about town who jets around the world and is the necessary ingredient to international commerce. At the same time, we're told that he couldn't pay the taxes that he owed because of that brilliance because he's a drug addled maniac. That's all in one paragraph. They can they one paragraph contains both those sentiments. 
he was so he was so drug addicted he couldn't pay his taxes, but he still managed to be a, be a high flying international businessman. And worse still, they tried to set up a system in which Hunter Biden could have any potential prosecutions that flowed from the behavior that is under investigation ignored on the grounds that he had admitted that he was a drug addict. In other words, even if they find that the reason that he didn't pay his taxes was because he made the money illicitly, even if they find that he broke all manner of laws and is guilty of all manner of corruption, it all gets stuffed under the guilty plea. I don't know where they go next. They got caught. The judge looked through this, which is unusual, said, hang on a minute, what on earth are you trying to pull? And then asked the DOJ that question, at which the DOJ said, well, of course, we're not trying to do that, which it was. And then Hunter Biden's lawyer said, but that's what you said you were trying to do. The whole thing is off. I don't know where they go next. The only thing I can imagine is that Biden... Hunter Biden, that is, is going to have to take this much narrower deal and then hope that the next shoe doesn't drop because this ploy, which would have been extended to no one else and is a disgrace in and of itself, irrespective of any other implications, has not worked. So, Maddie, th- this is this is kind of the, the process stuff. That's too sliding a word, but you know, this this is related to the investigation. Then there's the the substance of the wrongdoing or at least sleaziness that's being investigated. And we have a, another indication of where that's going by uh, from Miranda Devine, columnist in the New York Post, who's been on top of this from the beginning, has reported that Devin Archer, former business part- partner of Hunter Biden, is going to testify that Hunter put Joe on the phone two dozen times with uh, various business calls related to this overseas, quote unquote, work. And we have the White House press secretary perhaps changing her tune. What she said, the line this week, very notably, you know, it used to be Joe knew nothing about this, you know, and never talked to Hunter Biden about it. Now it's Joe wasn't in business with Hunter. Yeah. So this is the question that we just keep coming back to is how much did the president know? And you can see why Biden's Department of Justice would want to put an end to this. And I think that's part of the concern about what they were trying to achieve with this deal. I mean, what we've really seen here is the Justice Department being caught out playing games, trying to give preferential treatment. And and why? Well, yes, it's the president's son, but also it, could the president be implicated here? I think what they were, they were hoping for is that they could get away with selling a very simplified, redacted version of the agreement. The press would then run with their nothing-to-see-her stories and the judge would, as you've described, just rubber stamp it. But of course, it that didn't happen. We had the, the whistleblower evidence and now we have just basic scrutiny from the court here in, in which, you know, she, the judge pointed out these aren't straightforward. These are atypical provisions, potentially even unconstitutional in, in, in granting her prosecutorial powers that actually belong to the executive branch. And I think, you know, she, she's obviously uh, really just exposed this for, for what it is. And it, we'll, we'll see how, how much further it goes. But um, it certainly s- smells like corruption. Yeah. And it, t- just to 
pile on to your your point there. It's not as a it's not just that it was like oh oh nothing to see here. Their argument was going to be he's been held accountable by an agreement that was going to make sure they wouldn't be held accountable and would would expose expose really the the investigation into the more serious stuff as a sham. So MBD exit question to you. Will the press at some point there, there's been some some good reporting about this, but the the legacy press will at some point become obsessed with with this uh, Hunter Joe Biden business scandal the way it it has in the past with other major scandals? Yes or no? I think they're going to try with all their might not to get there, but they may get there anyway. If if we get that testimony about. Joe Biden, if that that testimony comes through and it's credible that Joe Biden was on the phone 20 times or more, then you you combine that with statements that Hunter Biden has made that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's finances were intermingled at various points in their life or that Hunter was paying for things for Joe Biden and the the plane ride and everything else we kind of know from the little drips and drabs of the story over the last six years, yeah, I think they can get obsessed. Charlie Cook? I think that the press is going to do everything it can not to investigate or report on this because the press has convinced itself that that is necessary for saving democracy. I think Michael is right that if there is, in fact, a real scandal there, and we don't know, the press will eventually be unable to ignore it. There's also a risk in ignoring it if there is indeed something there, because if it all were to come out in, say, August or September of next year, it would be too late for the Democratic Party, the press's great love in life, to adapt. Yeah, that it's, it's another huge risk with, with Biden. It, you know, the health thing or potential... Fall is one, recession another, and and this is the the third horseman of the apocalypse, potentially. Maddie Kearns, will the press eventually have to be obsessed with it? I don't know about obsessed, but I certainly think that their level of interest is likely to increase. I think you're already seeing that. You had the Business Insider report about Hunter Biden's uh, shitty art dealings with Democratic donors. They're they're never going to be obsessed in the way they're obsessed about Trump and, and his scandals, but I think they're going to be interested. So I agree that they'll do everything to resist becoming obsessed and drawing attention to this. But I think just the facts will make it unavoidable that it, it becomes um, a matter of, of high interest for the press. With that, let's pause and hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. Charlie. Indeed, Ball and Branch Sheets. Now, did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes. But one company, that's Ball and Branch, is changing the standard for good. Ball and Branch makes the softest, most luxurious sheets without any toxins or harsh chemicals. They use the finest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. And Ball and Branch sheets have a natural unmatched softness and get softer with every wash. And I know this because I sleep on them every night. I actually spoke to someone recently who said, are they as good as you say? I'm about to pull the trigger on an editor's-inspired ball and branch purchase. And the answer is yes, they really are that good. I don't know if that person has done it yet. If he's listening, go and do it now. And you should get, 
if you are currently perusing the deal. The Bollenbrach Signature Hemmed Sheets, which are a bestseller for a reason, in that they are the only sheets in the world that get softer with every wash. They feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable, so they're perfect for the warmer weather that we are having at the moment. They're loved by millions of sleepers, and they're so luxurious, they're loved by four U.S. presidents. Maybe this should be a question in the upcoming primaries. Will you, if elected, be the fifth? They have 11,000 reviews. They come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes, from twin up to California king, which means they're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. Bollenbrand sheets fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever, even if, like me, you're a bit of a klutz. Best of all, Bollum Branch offers a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. So if you want to join the millions of people and four U.S. presidents who sleep better at night with Bollum Branch sheets and get 15% off your first order, you can use promo code EDITORS at bollandbranch.com. That's bollandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. Promo code EDITORS. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks, Charlie. Let's check with let's stick with you for a moment. We had Ron DeSantis did an interview with Clay Travis the other day. Clay asked him, "Hey, you know, Donald Trump might consider RFK Jr. as his running mate. How about you?" And DeSantis said, uh, "Well, you know, uh, RFK is." He's pro-choice, so so that's a problem. But you know, I, I'm really good on the medical stuff, so so that that that's that's important. And I think you might sick him if he's willing to serve on the the C, CDC or or the F, FDA. Now, I don't think this this means DeSantis is is saying he's going to make a RFK the, the CDC director, but uh, it it. Uh, directionally, you know, it suggests, you know, it could be the IG or it could be the head of some blue ribbon panel or whatever. And you are not very enamored of this answer. I thought it was a terrible answer. And I can't really parse the defenses of DeSantis. It's possible he didn't say that he was going to appoint him to the CDC or the FDA. And he probably said sick instead of sick. Yes. But he said, if he'd be willing to serve. That is a sentence that implies an appointment or endorsement of some sort. And there is never an excuse to appoint or endorse Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to anything. Or for that matter, any Kennedy. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a kook. Now, I understand that there are some questions, both political and medical, about the COVID vaccine. It is unusual to do what we did and to produce something and then mandate it in some cases, or at least make life difficult for those who haven't got it, on such a short timeline. My view from the start, my view still, is that the vaccine was a miracle drug that saved a lot of lives and that mandates were wrong. Not just on libertarian grounds, although that is my view, but because it was a brand new and relatively untested medical innovation. I've heard people say, well, you don't mind your children having to get a polio vaccine before they can go to school. No, I don't, because we've had this since the 1950s, and we know how it works. There is obviously a a difference there. A difference, though, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. does not observe. It is true that Ron DeSantis was pretty good 
with the medical literature during COVID. I think he's become too hostile toward the vaccine for my tastes. But he has done the reading. He made a name for himself arguing with journalists having done the reading. If you speak to people within the fields of immunology and virology, they will tell you, right or wrong, DeSantis knows what he's talking about. That is not true of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is a conspiracy theorist and a kook and has done an enormous amount of damage with his wholesale rejection of vaccines, his wholesale denunciation of pharmaceutical companies, and his tendency to pick out one or two lines from reports, misunderstand them, and then make sweeping claims about them. As I said on an episode of The Editors last week, I have seen this firsthand as somebody who volunteered for a long time at my mum's work with autistic preschool children. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did damage there because he convinced an awful lot of parents that the reason that their children have an autism diagnosis is that the parents gave them the MMR vaccine and that it's therefore their fault. He also dissuaded a lot of parents from giving their children the MMR vaccine and thereby encouraged the spread of measles, mumps, and rubella. Ron DeSantis should not be indulging Robert F. Kennedy Jr. There is no need to do it. All he needs to say is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running as a Democrat. He does not agree with me on a host of the important issues that I stand for. I am not running as a Democrat. I'm running as a Republican. Here is my pitch. I don't understand why DeSantis feels the need to indulge the premise every time. In in the fear, it seems that he's going to upset a few people on the internet. The consequence of this, even if he did upset a few people on the internet, has been to upset many more people who he needs to win. This was an unforced error. I'm glad that he walked it back. I don't buy the argument that he never said anything about appointing or endorsing him in some way. He did. This he should learn from. So MBD, you're quite skeptical of the biomedical state, as DeSantis tends to call it. Anything to be said for bringing in RFK in any capacity or listening to him? So listen, I think RFK is a monomaniac on some of the vaccine issues. I think he's, I, I basically assume that the people telling me he is dead wrong on the connection between vaccines and autism are correct. But I am, I am a skeptic of FDA and CDC and his book going after Fauci during the COVID era has a lot that's right in it. And I don't want to be boxed into trust the FDA or trust Bobby Kennedy question. Right. And I agree. He's kooky. We don't, but of course, we have a lot of kooks in the medical industry, even in the pharmaceutical industry, telling us that they can help with puberty blockers and other drugs to make boys into girls and girls into boys. So I, I just find my my outrage about this is rather low. I don't I don't think DeSantis should appoint him to something that has actual decision making power. But if he put him on some commission and had him vigorously questioning people in public, I I wouldn't I wouldn't care about that. Michael, can I just say that you, you're wrong on this because 
the aims you seek, the ends you want to achieve, would be damaged by having RFK Jr. being the one to investigate them. I agree with you that we shouldn't be performing sex change operations on minors. There are lots of people out there who can make that case sensibly. If the people who went on television to talk about how we shouldn't be performing sex changes on minors also started talking about aliens and the the history of the Sumerian tribes that flew through the air in their magic rainbow water boats, they would damage the case that we were trying to advance. That's what RFK Jr. is doing here. You don't need him to make the case you want to make. I hope you don't. I don't no, I don't think I need him, but I'm I'm just not I am not particularly outraged about him after having endured the last three years of uh, of official lies, etc. Right? Like it's like okay, yeah, he tells his lie about vaccines. I had to endure lots of lies about vaccines the past three years. I endured lots of lies about masks, about uh, everything, and and I just. Like I said, I want to resist being backed into a corner of you're either pro FDA and pro big pharma or you're pro RFK. Like there's there's just so much. That's not the dichotomy. There's, but that's what I'm saying is there's so much rhetorical room here. So yeah, like I said, I don't. We don't win this by replacing one set of people who are wrong with another, though. Let's let's get let's get Maddie in. Yeah. So I I actually think that the part where I agree with Charlie the most is that the main argument against saying that, you know, you would endorse, or if if not saying you would endorse, but being sympathetic to RFK in a leadership role is that he's a liberal and he describes himself as a mainstream liberal. And you, it's, it's tempting in politics sometimes to think my enemy's enemy is my friend. And sure, there were, you know, these problems as, as Michael's written about a lot to do with the CDC and the FDA, but that doesn't mean that you want your somebody who ha- is completely ideologically opposed to things you care about um, managing these things. So, I, I mean, I, I've looked at. I actually find him kind of an RFK an interesting figure because some some of what he says like sounds like kind of interesting and and and, and almost like plausible. You know, when he, when he's questioned about these things, like you you know, you're anti-vax. He says, no, no, I'm not anti-vax. That's a smear. I I just think these things should be properly tested. And you think, oh yeah, that that sounds kind of reasonable. And then he comes out with something just like undeniably, unmistakably insane. And you think, okay, well, not to be trusted. But I do, I do think that pe- the public trust is so low right now that it does mean that people are more interested in these conspiracy types. So, Charlie, you mentioned aliens, which gives me an occasion to ask a uh, unrelated. It's it's the hook for me to ask my UFO exit question. I've been waiting to get into this podcast. Do you believe? The UFO whistleblower has gotten a lot of attention lately, and there was a UFO hearing in Congress this week. Do you believe him? Yes or no? I was much more open to the idea that the universe was full of UFOs until the U.S. government seemed to confirm it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But you're, you're open to it. I've, of course, I'm open to it. We are a tiny part of the universe. The notion that in an infinite expanse with billions of stars and potentially inhabitable planets, whatever inhabitable means, that there wouldn't be something else strikes me as unlikely. Whether they're interested in coming down here, I never have. I have 
Absolutely no idea. All right, Amadeus, we have a very judicious open to it from Charlie. Well, so what are we open to? Are we open to the government? Do, do you believe the Do you believe the UFO whistleblower who says you know there's been this cover up and we've recovered all these uh, uh, crashed UFOs, including uh, the bodies of aliens? Yeah, the non-human biologics. No, I don't. I don't believe this guy. There's we have no. We've been no physical evidence has been produced. I mean, show it to me. And you know, on the question of whether we're alone in the universe, I don't. Uh, I, I will judiciously say I don't know. I doubt it. I, I doubt we're alone, but I also, I don't know. I, I could imagine that the only other things that are occupying it are not intelligent beings. I can imagine it's just, you know, there's some like amazing viruses. It's like, it's like the set, the set of the view <laughs> somewhere out there on another planet. Well, no, no, I just, I, well, it's like, okay, there's, there, great. There's like some amoebas on this planet and there's some viruses on that planet. I can imagine that. Um, but no. All right. So Maddie, we have an open to it. We have a no on the whistleblower. Where are you on the whistleblower? I'm a no when it gets to sort of like alien stuff, but. It certainly seems plausible to me that there are just unidentified objects and uh, phenomenon that we just we don't know what they are and where they've come from. But it seems much more likely that they would be coming from a foreign country than uh, a foreign planet. But uh, certainly interesting, so worth entertaining. Yeah, I'm going to say I, I really want to believe in UFOs, but I'm going to say no. I don't believe this guy. Also, the whole Chinese spy balloon thing, where uh, you know, it turns out that these. Balloons have been all over the place for a very long time. Also shook my my uh, potential faith in UFOs, and I also believe, you know, if if you can, if you had the capacity to get here from another galaxy or whatever it is, why are you always crashing? You know, can't can't just stick a landing. And also, and, unless there, are, you know, as, as some sci-fi films have it, you know, th this these other civilizations are so advanced they they have no interest in us. If they're really superior to us such that they can do this travel across galaxies. They'd come and conquer us and colonize us and take whatever they found of value and then say, see you later. And that, that hasn't happened. Thank God. But I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a no on this whistleblower. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. Are you ready to be part of the solution to America's freer future? Then mark your calendars for an unforgettable event. Join the Fund for American Studies in Park City, Utah at the Stein Erickson Lodge Deer Valley Resort from October 19th through the 22nd. Join us at the TFAS, TFAS Leadership Summit, where we'll address the issues of creeping socialism, abuses of power, and censorship, all of which threaten our individual freedoms. The event gathers an impressive lineup of thought leaders, including Jared Baker, editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal, U.S. Congressman for Utah, Burgess Owens, and our own Noah Rothman, and many, many more. The summit is a unique opportunity for concerned individuals like you to discover powerful ideas and work together to restore America's founding principles. Don't miss out on this chance to be part of the solution. Register now to ensure that our nation remains a shining beacon of freedom and an opportunity for generations to come. Visit tfas.org slash leadership summit to secure your spot today. Again, that's tfas.org as.org slash leadership summit to secure your spot. We love our friends at TFAS, so please check it out. So Maddie, as we've discussed before, the left has had great success, unfortunately, with ballot initiatives uh, promoting abortion 
And just wherever they've had one of these on in the post-Dobbs context, they've won. So they're going to push more. A big battleground is going to be Ohio. And we sort of have pro-November jousting here where Ohio is um, one of 18 states, I believe, where you can pass a constitutional amendment through a referendum. But half of those states, it's a higher, a more complicated threshold than just half of people voting for a proposed amendment. So the pro-life forces have a ballot measure on in a week or so to try to raise that threshold to 60 percent rather than 50 percent. Looks like uh, it's not looking good for that. Looks like it's probably going to go down and then it's not looking good for the uh, on the underlying question either, a very deceptively but unfortunately cleverly for the other side, a worded referendum. Yes. Yeah, so this is a very strong argument against direct democracy in that people don't really pay that close attention to details. And I think that the pro-abortion advocates are becoming better and better at hoodwinking the public. So what they've done in this case is they've buried the the abortion provision and and just how you know extreme the abortion provision is. We explain in our editorial how it would actually be possible to interpret this. First, it, it says individual, not not adult. So you could have um, a right to an abortion for somebody underage, but also you could uh, also interpret it as a, a right to abortion, basically well into the third trimester, in order to protect the health of the mother health being uh, interpreted as including mental health. So all of that is sort of disguised by including things that are are more or less c- consensus issues in terms of contraception, fertility treatment, uh, miscarriage care is in there. I mean, come on, who who objects to miscarriage care? And and even they put continuing, pr- continuing pregnancy. So so somebody reading this is like, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds fine. Well, yeah, I don't want to make that illegal. Continuing pregnancy, oh, of course. And then the last one, less course, is abortion. Really, this is this is really concerning because we we saw what happened in Michigan, where the pro life side were just massively outspent, and it's really really hard to fight disinformation on these types of things when you're outspent, and also the media isn't on your side. So I, I knew I was I was looking at our editorial, and I you know browsing the web more broadly and I realized you know we're one of very few uh publications that's actually written about this from from a pro-life side uh which is concerning because the message just isn't going to get out there um we've also seen you know if you ask people about six like heartbeat bills and you ask them in a certain way they're they're the public are kind of in Ohio or split on that but then if you ask them by including these other things they show majority support for abortion providing abortion so it really is all in the messaging here and we're we're definitely at a disadvantage all right so Maddie we are actually going to have to let you go, which is not your fault. You're not leaving early. It's just <laughs> Charlie was, arrived very late. So uh, we've, we've r- run out of time for, for you. But let me ask you the, the exit question before you go. So at least we have you on the record for that. This pro-abortion measure will pass in November, whether the threshold is 50 or, or, or 60. Yes or no? I'm going to say yes, but I really, really, really hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Thanks so much, Maddie. Any any parting uh, pearls of wisdom for us before you run out the door? Not really. Just um, stay cool because it's hot out there. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Maddie. So MBD, in terms of these ballot measures, it's been a, a really grim 
picture anything pro-lifers are doing wrong that, uh, you know, you can you can point to certain th- things, you know, uh, what was it in Kansas, the pro-life measure was too vague. But, but it, it seems to be wherever you go, there's some explanation for why the pro-life side is lost, but the the consistent theme is the pro-life side is losing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we have evidence that the pro-life uh, activist movements, which were so crucial in getting Roe overturned, I think, by linking pro-life voters to campaigns and politicians, whether in the Senate or for the presidency, that would, would appoint the judges that would over, overturn it, they haven't been able, they haven't had the wherewithal or the funds to readjust for the democratic combat that they've been fighting to get a chance to have for over 40 years. So uh, the, the level at which the pro-life movement is outgunned state to state is shocking. And, you know, uh, on one level, like I, I think really seeing, you know, a kind of worst case scenario where Republican politicians at the state level are terrified of this issue, right? Because they're seeing polling that doesn't work well for them. And then they just say, well, if if the logic is this is a referendum, then I could just wash my hands of it. It's on the people, right? I I won't even mention it in the campaign or I'll be the candidate for people of both sides somehow, Uh, you know, and that's what, you know, in the absence of the media fighting on your side or, and politicians fighting on your side, you know, the activists themselves have trouble even educating voters uh, on the content of this referendum. So it's, it is pretty desperate. And uh, the, the pro-life movement is going to have to retool very quickly. Otherwise, Roe's going to be rebuilt state by state. Charlie? I am not optimistic in the short term. The case against Roe v. Wade, the correct self-evidently powerful case against Roe v. Wade was that it was wrong. That the Constitution does not and has never mandated that states permit abortion. The flip side of that, though, is that states may permit abortion if they want to. And we live in a country in which 65 to 67% of voters are fine with abortion in the first trimester. I wish that weren't true, but it is. And I think that, at least at the moment, those voters read any ballot initiative that is put in front of them as a yes-no question on abortion in the first trimester. And I think that because of that, we're going to see state after state after state adopt these constitutional protections, including probably a lot of red states. I think Florida will pass such a constitutional amendment if it makes it onto the ballot. I do think that over time, there will be a reaction because, as has been pointed out, many of these constitutional amendments go much further in practice than the rhetoric undergirding them would suggest. The public never really understood, as polling showed over and over, what Roe v. Wade did. 
It was much more difficult to make that clear when it had been imposed by the Supreme Court and taken out of the democratic process. It will be easier to make it clear now that abortion is the preserve of legislatures and ballot propositions. But I think in the short term, the pro-life side is going to have to deal with the consequences, the correct consequences, uh, of its having only achieved the first part of this, which is to bring this question back into the democratic realm. We have not won the argument. We have not persuaded Americans that abortion is a great evil, and we're going to see them take steps to protect it until we do. So maybe I'm going to come up with a different exit question, because I assume we all think this is going to, from our perspective, go the wrong way, right? Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, MBD, going back to the, the prior segment, which I uh, used as an occasion to, to get UFOs in. Let's go back to just the, the politics of that. And let me ask you, the, the straddle that Ron DeSantis is trying to make between appealing to a segment of MAGA voters and winning over conventional Republicans, the RFK Jr., brouhaha shows that's going to be nearly impossible yes or no no i don't think it's i don't think it's nearly impossible no i don't think he's found the right issue to do it on yet but i actually think the the necessary and sufficient condition for his campaign success is figuring out how to do that i think to consolidate the non-trump vote he has to find a way to steal about five to ten percent of the trump vote from trump no, I don't think it shows anything of the sort. I think it shows that DeSantis made the wrong choice. I think the number of people who would genuinely have been upset with him had he said, no, I'm not interested in RFK Jr. as my VP is vanishingly small. If he had really wanted to, he could have avoided the question completely by saying, I'm a Republican, I'm running as a Republican, when I win the nomination, I will choose as my running mate a Republican. This was the wrong decision. And if it shows a habitual failure to make the right choices, then it will matter. Yeah, because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't asked by Travis, oh, do you, will you make him CDC director? He's like, will you be his running mate? And then he volunteered the other right. stuff. right. So I think if it shows a lack of judgment that is endemic, then yeah, it will it will show that he's unable to win the voters he needs to. But I don't think that is an intrinsic condition under which he's operating. Yeah. So as we we talked about last last episode, the, the whole lanes and this coalition and that that coalition, it can be overdone. And if DeSantis just finds a way to be more appealing, he's going to see his numbers go up among all segments of the Republican party but but this just showed that this is a classic two online attitude and actually as i wrote in a column this week it's not really the santa's campaign is not really two online it's two twitter they i think they they went uh, on youtube for something like 2 weeks without posting anything like you know had an interview with russell brand they didn't post it on youtube <laughs> and and they've been really uh inactive and passive on Facebook as well. And Facebook is really important to Republican voters. It's more impo- important to Republican voters than Facebook. So if you're really very online, th- th- those things wouldn't be happening. Instead, it's 
it's uh, an overemphasis on Twitter, sort of a Kamala Harris overemphasis on Twitter. And and there's also a kind of a fear there, right? I mean, he he wants to give the answer that's pleasing to Clay Tra- Travis in that moment and is pleasing to a relatively small segment of Republican voters. Or even if it's a, a wider segment of Republican voters, this is one to avoid because it's a wedge issue. Because you please that segment, you're going to turn off the other segment that you need to uh, – uh, need to appeal to, but but I would just underline scared. You're scared to offend Clay Travis, scared to offend a certain segment of Republicans. And I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, you can there are a lot of different versions of what you can define as Trump's superpower. One of them is just making every other Republican afraid of him. And I can't think of any example of anyone winning a major party presidential nomination who ever showed any fear of anything, right? There's certain issues you want to be careful about. You know, there's certain constituencies you, you want to be careful about. But afraid? Afraid is very bad. Afraid is very bad. And every single Republican, with the exception of Christie, you know, who has other issues, is obviously afraid of Trump. You know, obviously, you know, won't say his name if if they don't have to. You know, obviously, is rehearsing lines they've they've written down or thought about really carefully in advance because they're afraid. So I I think that's uh, rather than the coalition being impossible, I don't think it's impossible. I think winning winning the nomination with 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 that characteristic is going to be really really. Hard. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around a meter paywall, your way to see 90% fewer ads if you sign up and log in, your way to become a, uh, a much um, more engaged member of our community. If that floats your boat, to comment on articles and blog posts and be invited to exclusive events, and your way. And this is really important to support our our valuable journalism. We need people to pay a little bit for it, not a lot, but just a, just a little bit. So if you're not already a member, please consider becoming one and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR Plus. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been it's been brought home to you just what a great advantage it is having a great deli near your house. Yeah. I mean, this is something I kind of learned when I moved to the DC area uh, as a young man and there, there were just no good delis. There was like a million seven elevens, but no good delis. And I just have a superb one in my town uh, in Westchester and a superb deli is not just a source of great food or great catering when the occasion is right, but also they tend to be in the Northeast a little world unto themselves where the cast behind the counter uh, stays relatively stable, develops a lot of in-jokes, develops nicknames for the customers. And um, I don't know, it's one of the great little platoons of uh, Northeast United States and should be preserved forever. Charlie. I went this week with my five-year-old to the Jacksonville Jaguars training camp. And we got to meet some of the players, the wide receivers, and he got a football signed by all of them that he's now immensely proud of. And I'm afraid he's rubbing it in a little bit, his (laughs) seven-year-old brother who wasn't able to make it. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So the, the worst story I've heard recently about uh, get, getting autographs from athletes in a major sport is uh, I, I read this this book, uh, The Bad Guys Won, about the 1986 Mets. And, and the, it's a wonderful little book. And the author of it is a Mets fan. I was a Mets fan as a, as a kid when they're they're really bad. And he was down in spring training and there was a thunderstorm, you know, and he convinced his dad, no, let's wait, let's wait, you know, maybe we'll see some of the players. And, and sure enough, the rain stopped, the players started coming out and, you know, he got five or six autographs on a ball. And then Dave Kingman is is walking in from the outfield, this uh, irascible slugger for the, the Mets and a bunch of other teams, you know, he'd hit 40 home runs and get 50 RBIs and hit 200, kind of a standard hitter now uh, in, in major league terms, but was freakish at the time. And, you know, he's, you know, you know, Mr. Kingman, Mr. Kingman, you know, and, and Kingman um, motions to him that, oh, yeah, throw, throw the ball here, kid. And, and he th- throws Kingman the ball and Kingman deliberately misses it, let it, lets it splash in a puddle and walks away, which is like one of the, the, uh, <laughs> the worst things I've heard. It's not, the, it's not the biggest offense, but it's one of the worst offenses I've, I've ever heard. Just to be a jerk, just to be a That's jerk. Terrible. I guess just because he could do it. Well, I should say that the Jaguars players who had about 100 other people in the line really were great, just chatting with the kids, asking them questions, saying thanks for coming in. So there, there was none of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you either have to be a jerk or really jaded not to enjoy signing autographs, you know, for people who adore you and worship you as a near deity, you know? <laughs> so I saw Oppenheimer. I saw it. Um, not, not the the first day I was out, but the the next day. I guess it was last last uh, Friday, a week ago today, and uh, I thought it was really good. I, I I liked it as a color movie. It's the the color is all, all the action related to the development of the you know Oppenheimer's basic biography, and and then the the development of the bomb, and then there's layered in this black and white movie having to do with security clearance hearings and Senate confirmation hearings that, you know, every scene is well done, but I think not to sound like Armand White here, you know, if you're really technically adept filmmaker, you can become self-indulgent. You can do more than you need to just because you know uh, minute by minute you're doing it well, but that doesn't mean you add it all up and it's uh, it's worth three hours of uh, a movie, so I thought it was it was too long. I could have done done without the the confirmation stuff, but it's a very thought thought provoking movie. Has engendered a lot of interesting commentary. Peggy Noonan wrote a column for the Journal today saying she wish it had focused more on on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how that affected Oppenheimer and had more of a sense of how these weapons are still a, a threat to um, to our, our civilization. But I I don't think that's a legitimate. Criticism. I think if you, it, if you show Hiroshima, it becomes you know it, it's kind of becomes a movie about Hiroshima, and th- there 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 is a, a sense of threat of these things from from the moment that that they're they're um, shown that they're the moment they're conceived of in in the movie, and and Oppenheimer's clearly haunted by the terrible destructive power he's helped. Unleash. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Um, I pick once again Armand White. This one's the deliberate speed of fast car. He uh, writes on this really silly controversy about a white country artist covering the folk song from the 1980s by Tracy Chapman, "Fast Car." And uh, Armand's just 100 percent correct in this that the the song itself is 
beautiful and universal in its longing and, and characteristically American in its aspiration to escape a bad situation and find salvation in the suburbs and that it connects to very different artists and two very different genres. So read him. Charlie. I'm going to take Dominic Pino's How One Income Tax Policy Screwed Up American Healthcare, which is about the strange path dependency that has been created by a decision that was made during the FDR administration to link health insurance to employment. Dominic points out that Quote, excluding employer-provided health coverage from the income tax base contributes to all sorts of problems with U.S. healthcare. That may sound like a fairly heavy piece. It is in some regards, but given the importance of healthcare and this issue within our politics, it's a crucial thing to understand. And I think that Dominic, as ever, does a great job in explaining it. So my pick is MBD's piece on beach reading and. Uh... Just because it's so characteristic, it's no no summary uh, light novels on, on this list. Although MBD stipulates that he likes to take collections of short stories by Flannery O'Connor or Truman Capote to the beach, but failing that, he'll settle for books by Mary Harrington, by Christopher Rufo, by Roger Scruton, and even by Marco Rubio. We'll let Luke Thompson take that up with you uh, uh, later. MBD, but this is this is uh, Michael's pretty serious, uh, pretty well, serious beach reading. Well, I'm just saying there's a, there's a there's a heap of conservative books that are actually worth reading this summer. So yeah, check them out. I really, I actually really liked uh, Harrington's book and, and Rufo's book, and I think Rubio's book is an interesting clue of um, where politics might be heading in the future, or at least where where it's where it is currently. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, MBD. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks to Ball and Branch Sheets and the TFAS Leadership Summit. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.